on a Greyhound bus Lord, I'm traveling this morning I'm going to sleep, Lord And down to New Orleans Been traveling these highways Been doing things my way It's been making me Hello out there in podcast land. Welcome back to VMP Anthology, the podcast. This is what, our 18th season? Is that is that possible? Is that right? I was but a podcast babe when we started making these, you know, in 2019. Uh, yeah, unbelievable. We're on season 18. And the header image of this podcast and the titles have not deceived you. This season is dedicated to VMP Anthology 18, which is the story of Waylon Jennings, the greatest country singer to ever live. I said it. I am I am sure of that assertion. He is the most important country artist to the sound of country music that has maybe ever lived. And this box set collects eight of his studio LPs, eight albums, eight LPs, and it is his imperial period. You could barely get bigger as an artist than Whalen was in the period that is captured in this box. And we are extremely excited to present it to you. By now, you should have it, or at least should be on your way to you uh, as, as you're hearing this in your ears. And this one was a total passion project for me. It was like when we started doing anthologies, the idea was to do them across genres. And my first two ideas for country were to do a Willie Nelson box, which we, of course, have done, and to do a Waylon Jennings box, which we obviously have done. And we worked closely with uh, Shooter Jennings, Waylon's son, on this project, uh, you know, he approved all of the titles, the colors, the liner notes, everything got a thumbs up from him. And he was really, really excited to see this come across his desk when we came to him with it. So we are incredibly proud of this box. Some of them are still available. You can find them on vinylmeplease.com. And yeah, this season of the podcast, uh, the big Magilla, <laughs> the the big episode is this first one where I sat down with Shooter Jennings himself. He called me uh, to a call into a Google Hangout. Uh, I was in my basement in St. Paul, Minnesota. He was in a hotel room in Houston, Texas, uh, on tour supporting Brandy Carlisle as her keyboardist, and was on a day off. And, you know, decided to spend some of his time nerding out about Waylon Jennings records and the people who played on them and on the box itself. So this episode, you will hear my talk with Shooter Jennings and we get into everything that went into this. We get into what it was like to be Waylon's son. We, we get into, you know, which parts of Waylon's career Shooter himself loves the most. You know, it was just a really a really surreal and awesome thing to get to talk to 
you know, Whalen's son, Whalen, Whalen Jennings Jr. You know, he doesn't have the exact name, but he, he is his father's son and getting to talk to somebody who knew him as well as Shooter did and and knows his catalog as well and played with a lot of the people that his dad did was really, really special. And I'm really excited to be able to bring you this conversation that I had with Shooter Jennings. Here that is. Do you want to talk about this box with other folks who are obsessed with Waylon and with vinyl just like you? Do you want somewhere to debate which album should have been in this box? Well, do we have the place for you? It's the VMP Discord, which is open to vinyl lovers of all types. Head on over and look for the channel dedicated to this Waylon anthology. Then, stick around to debate sandwich toppings. Join by going to discord.gg slash please. Now, back to the show. First off... You know, what is it like for you, you know, as sort of one of the keepers of the whale and flame to, you know, see the impact that his work still has on people? Man, I, I don't know. It's so, uh, it makes me very happy that people still love listening to his music, you know, for sure. Like, I mean, but for me, it's just on a personal relationship, like, uh, I'm really grateful that my dad has, has all this music out there that, that I can hear, you know, so, and I know there's a lot of people who still to this day, he's their favorite of all time, you know, so it, it, it means, of course, a lot and, and but at the same time it's like beautiful work, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it's hard it's hard to, it's not like you know, whatever it is that makes people love music and it moves people with music, whatever that is, you may not have that figured out but we know that we know that there's, there's certain people down the line that have just uh, made such special music and touched so many people. You know that it's going to be there forever, and, and I'm really lucky that, that he's one of those, and he was one of those, you know? Mm-hmm, for sure. And, you know, what do you think about his music has, like, allowed it to endure? Because it's, you know, not not every country album from 50 years ago is still something that people are like, this is unbelievable. I feel that in any genre, when you have something that is that is truly like this authentic creative expression that is from the ground up uh, somebody's vision or a band's vision or just whatever the chemistry is, you know, like with, yeah, not all country music lasts, but all classic country music lasts and it, and it, mm-hmm. and it doesn't age because it's so authentic and it's so um, true to itself. You know, when it's, uh, when something is like, kind of a copy of something else, you know, it, it may not last, but when you have people, you know, like Bob Dylan and use those early records and they're just eternally timeless, you know? And I think, mm-hmm. you know, my dad's records, especially that period of time when he was really, he had discovered who he was and it was really emerging and it's like in the seventies and, uh, and it was on display, like those records, are clearly just timeless and they're a period of time captured where magic was happening, you know, and just like Hank Williams seniors recorded work or like, you know, the early Johnny cash stuff. So there's, you know, there's this period where people are, are just seriously in tune with their creative energy and, and it's the authenticity of it is impossible to deny. And that's what that period for him was, you know, and, it's my favorite period. I was lucky to grow up in it, kind of. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was at the tail end of it, but 
it's just one of those things where when those kind of artists vibrate at that frequency, you know, it creates mm -hmm. timeless work. Yeah. And I think the authenticity part, I think you're right. Like it can't be like almost overstated. It's just like you hear his records and it sounds like he's grabbing you by the shirt and like singing those into your face. Like there is, yeah. there's like no, it feels like there's no wall between him and you as a listener. It's just like, it's coming right at you. Yeah, it really is. And I feel like they're, um, you know, on top of that, the, the chemistry between Richie Albright on the drums and Ralph Mooney on the steel and, and the guys in the band on these records um, and all the years they put in on the road, you know, there's, there's something there that, that is such a uh, primal, primarily discovered and refined sound, you know, and um, it can't be taught. So that's part of, part of those records too. And there's a, a letter John Lennon wrote my dad and he met him in like early seventies and he saw him on a, they were on some kind of a show together. I think, I think it was a like talk show and uh, John Lennon wrote him a letter. And, and in the letter he said, he's like, uh, by the way, uh, I loved watching you, uh, you know, and then he puts in parentheses, VG band, like very good band, you know, and because mm -hmm. he, he was reacting to that sound. And there was a lot of these guys uh, that I'll talk to that were in the younger batch, like Ray Benson from Asleep at the Wheel and stuff, but who were around when they were young when during these periods of time. Um, talked about how at any time that there was a show or a festival or something, where Waylon was playing, they would all run over there because they wanted to see him live. They, they they were such a good live band. They wanted to see see them perform, you know. And so that was a real rock and roll thing that was unusual in country before that point was mm -hmm. to have this kind of superstar, almost rock band, you know. Mm -hmm, for sure. And I mean, you got to play with some of these guys, you know, like you you've played with the Whalers, like. What was that like for you to get to play with, you know, his band members? Man, it was awesome, especially Richie. You know, he's been there from the beginning, and he was the drummer in the band at the Waymore's Outlaws or, or whatever. And we toured for four years, and he was playing a lot of my songs, some heavy songs. And we were, and you know, it was such a really, it was an amazing period of time that I'm so grateful that I got with Richie while he was here because we we we're on the road for you for four years together, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so to yeah. get in his field, never stopped. It was, it was awesome from day one, you know, and it was awesome to the day end, you know, mm -hmm. the end of the day. So he was just, uh, it, it was something he had and he played drums in a certain way that, that was just completely unique to him. And, uh, so many drummers now, like even then, like in the seventies, everybody copied his drum sound. Mm -hmm. When 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 the Waylon thing blew up, everybody had like a funky drummer, and then mm -hmm. uh, halftime beats and stuff. And then and even now, like even now, there's drummers that are that are still drawing from that well of inspiration, you know. Yeah, and I think that's something that really stands out when you take these records as like a piece. These eight is like, I don't know that before this that drums were ever part of a country record that you were like, this sounds incredible. You know, like the production on the drums on these Whalen records, it's like 60s soul records where you yeah, can, like, yeah, you can yeah. hear that like tight, like, I feel like you can tell how tight the snare is. Like that's how good it's recorded. It's so yeah. true. And the 16th on the hats and all those kind of things like that were just like so unusual for country, you know? Yeah. Big time. 
you know, you're a producer yourself, you know, and he produced some of these records by himself or co-produced them. You know, as a producer, what do you hear when you listen to these records? <laughs> well, I hear Richie. That's kind of the first uh -huh. thing that stands out is that drum, those drum tones and things. Uh -huh. uh, and, you know, so when I was young and I was analyzing records and trying to to understand how it all works, being an MTV kid and then also having like, this is an example and mm -hmm. you know it, it reminded me those records uh they they weren't far off sounded from like you know dark side of the moon and stuff like the <laughs> right. there it sounds and stuff they were there was there was a lot of overlap of sound there but I, when i was a little kid I, I used to love to go to the studio with my dad and i would just kind of sit there and watch it all happen and and i used to um always love the thing because they always like recorded it, you know in the evenings and stuff and it felt like you were going somewhere like really special and and you would kind of watch them all figure things out but it, it seemed very separate from the actual recorded sounds that i like listened to you know and so mm -hmm. like for a long time i was trying to understand how how they got those sounds you know and what was different about it because you know these are all like live performances and and there's i have a bunch of outtakes and stuff from some of that stuff because he kept a lot of his tapes and i've heard you know what it sounds kind of sounded like without the final layer of polish to it and mm -hmm. and it's really pretty much right there so you know when i hear those records i hear recorded performances through some really sweet old gear you know what i mean <laughs> mm -hmm. but if you were trying to like recreate that sound it's almost like you got to put a lot more elements to work to try and recreate the sound that they were getting i mean everything down to the symbols were different material like the, the you know what i mean so yeah you have to like all oh, it's just perfect it's like a perfect recording to me you know but mm -hmm. um that's something that that if you want to try and chase it down it's not that easy to do right yeah for sure we got you got to put out the demo takes man like one day one day yeah the there's so many of them that to go through but we're doing it so yeah that's incredible there's a they did a willie album like a few years ago it was like naked willie where it was like him doing it was basically just him and the guitar on like all of those songs that got like washed in strings in the late 60s that like i feel this could be a, a companion piece too almost you know oh like, nice yeah nice. yeah good idea yeah, yeah yeah and it's really interesting because there's like elements that were muted and stuff and some and some of these tracks where you're like there was like wah wah guitar on like <laughs> no way i think that's out my bit got out of hand yeah they, there was like tony joe clearly it's clearly tony joe white Playing uh -huh. this wah wah on Don't You Think This Outlaw that it got out of hand that didn't make it on the record, but when we opened up the tracks, it was there. So that kind of stuff is really interesting too. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> yeah, <whatever laughs> happens. Um, yeah, it'll take me years, but we'll get it. Yeah, yeah, I imagine. So, you know, is there a favorite song or an album in this period? I, okay, I'll tell you what, my favorite stuff in here is it's hard for me and i and i love you guys did that great um hunts on heroes you know yeah. which was a pivotal part of this story of this journey but because you guys had already done it, it's not in there mm -hmm. which i thought was cool that you kind of isolated it because it was the first one that didn't quite it was he hadn't broken through yet but it was right. like the sound was found you know and mm -hmm. um so for me like i growing up old wayland was my favorite 
And then um, because I just, I, I loved it. And I love, you know, the Hank Snow. I think I'm going to kill myself and satin sheets and getting funny. And, it, and those songs kind of really remind me of, I was born, I believe that came out in 79 or 80, but I was born or maybe sooner, but I was born in 79. So that was okay. like the record that he was touring when I was an infant in the, on the road and mm-hmm. was hearing like, till I gain control again every night. He was singing those songs all the time. So there was like a certain kind of um, connection I had to that record, maybe psychologically, subliminally or something, but it was always kind of my favorite. But then as I got older, you know, I really fell in love with I've Always Been Crazy, of course. It was like mm-hmm. uh, that had just so many of the great songs on it. And I also had like A Long Time Ago, which is a, a great song that nobody really pays much attention to. And it had Whistlers and Jugglers, which are both Shel Silverstein writes on it. Mm-hmm. And it had, it had uh, you know, Don't You Think It's Out Love It. It had uh, so many classics. It had that from Billy, which I love. So mm-hmm. I really fell in love with that record for a long time. And, you know, same with Lawrence Modern Mean, same with Are You Ready for the Country? Are You Ready for the Country? It has Graham Nash singing backgrounds on it. Right. Because it was, yeah. cut, it was cut at Sunset Sound in Los Angeles, which is where I cut a lot of the records that I do. And that has. My, my favorite field performance from Ralph Mooney um, and one of my favorite recordings of my dad's altogether, which was uh, the MacArthur Park Revisited on there. And there's oh, this like yeah. beautiful, beautiful field work from Mooney on it. Like a striped pair of pants And then something else, I was just sitting with my brother the other day and we were talking about that album. Oh no, we were talking about Music Man and it was because Music Man is a later album, but there was mm-hmm. a lot of the, the recordings from the Erex um, in the Country ended up being held and one of them was the Jimmy Buffett cover that ended up on that one but oh, that yeah, was yeah. where my, my brain went there but that's not in here so we should <laughs> we'll go back stick back to the still series. listen to music man but still 80s. yeah people should listen to music man yeah that's a great yeah record yeah, and yeah. It, it's a great record We're, it gets into the 80s but you know but you know of all what i'm getting at here is the thing that made me the, the most happy about this whole collection is that is leather and lace because not only of course it's my mom and dad but that had some of the most cool songs on it in particular one called i believe you can that was written co-written by my mom and a guy named basil mcdavid who also co-wrote um a song that she did called ain't making no headlines here without you that oh, she yeah. went on to do and and basil mcdavid and he, he actually there's a song on my mom's new record that margo price produced that's coming out that um the single's already out and it's written mm-hmm. by the same team and oh, cool um so yeah, man. So this song was just—it's just one of the most hidden, little beautiful songs on the planet. And it has like, yeah, there was like, you know, periods of time where I just listen to that song and it'll make me feel so much hope.
and it's such a beautiful song. I love their version of the Chuck Berry jam on that. That was kind of always my favorite version. I love that my dad does one of my mom's songs, like or like a sorry, um, what happened to Blue Eyes? But it's just him doing it. Mm-hmm. Like that whole collection is such a special record, and it's been kind of overlooked it's not really like it's not i don't know that it's on all streaming i don't know that it's I, mm-hmm. that that record just kind of got lost and um and so the fact that this is where this package ends i think is a really important thing because it's reflective of a lot of the music that was made throughout these records ending up like um on this duets record so mm-hmm. it's uh yeah I, i'm very very pleased with this whole package. And then there's, you know, this time people also don't realize like at the same time, Willie had yesterday's line out and my dad did their album this time. And my mom had her first record or second mm-hmm. record out and top all had their records out. And at that point in time, uh, like this time was my dad's first number one song. Mm-hmm. And this album, it was the first commercial success. And it was the first time that he'd gotten away from, RCA and they let him produce himself and he asked Willie to help him for it and they he cut some songs off yesterday's wine also but what ended up happening is the next step was he decided to take some songs from this time take some songs for Willie's yesterday's wine my mom's record and Tom Ball's record and make a collection record out of it and they called it the outlaws and that was born out of that record out of this time and uh, so that was the moment when they really connected. And after that, it's like after the Outlaws thing happened, you know, it just exploded. But right. um, yeah, first so country that, record was, to ever sell a million copies, right? Was yeah, was yes, Outlaws. yeah, yeah, unbelievable, uh, and triple yeah. million, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, uh, uh, but it's still like you know, it was uh, it was pretty wild. And the uh, that's the moment for that, you know, mm-hmm. and. Um, it's cool that it's kind of captured on, on this collection. Yeah. And I want to go back to leather and lace. Like, first off, I think it's a crazy story that your dad got tired of waiting for, for Stevie Nicks, uh, to do, to deliver because the song leather and lace ends up on her debut. Right. Yeah. Like, that's just a wild, like musical fact. I know, you know, I've never known the real story on that. I've heard multiple different stories about why it didn't end up there. I need to meet Stevie and just ask her, ask her because, uh, I've never gotten the correct, I've never gotten a definitive answer from anyone close enough to it. So I, but my mom, I don't even know if she knows. I should ask her. I'm going to have to get to the bottom of this This, Uh because this is being discussed a bunch lately. Um, somebody else brought this up to me. So. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's just, yeah, it's just so fun. You know, a year later, the song leather and lace is on, uh, Stevie's solo debut and yeah. like, it's a duet. Yeah. And so it's like, yeah, that's just a crazy thing. But you know, I wanted to talk like, I, I, I liked you, you know, hearing you say you liked this ends at leather and lace. Cause to me, I feel like you can't tell the Whalen story without incorporating Jesse because yeah. you know, like she's his muse for you as their son like what does she talk about you know she's very known as a devout christian you know and like makes gospel records later on and she is you know married to who at the time is like the most notorious party guy in all of music <laughs> you know like what did, how did she how did she make that work and like how you know how, how did how did she handle that and how did she talk about it now 
I mean, I think she had a lot of faith things were going to turn out, you know, and I mm-hmm. her strength and her faith kind of powered, helped her power through. But, but at the same time, they have a very loving relationship. And she was a very, you know, very much someone who was willing to let him be who he was going to be and, and not try to make him into something else. And she knew he had, he'd had a hard time. She always told me, she said, she goes, you know, you know, it would have been the first, you know, 15 years were the first 10 or 15 years were hard, but, mm-hmm. but it was worth, it was worth sticking it out because she knew that he needed the time to, to figure his himself out. And yet, mm-hmm. you know, she was able to, to be a partner to him and, and they, you know, they, they were crazy about each other too. So, mm-hmm. you know, it was, they made it work. And my mm-hmm. mom was, you know, she's, uh, very open-minded person and very, very much the right person to handle that situation. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I think at some point we got to talk to you and her about doing a Jesse box. Cause I think, yeah, like oh, her, it would be amazing. There's yeah, like a her, whole album that was never released that chips moment did in right in the peak of all this stuff. Like, uh, that it was called, uh, that's how cowboy rocks and rolls and it, i guess something happened and it just never came out so that would be amazing you guys yeah. should get that out there with it yeah uh we'll be in touch because yeah i just think you know her music I, i'm a whalen super fan but i think like you ignore her music at a cost if you are a fan that does not like go back to because her records in the 70s especially i think are some of the best country records period of the era. Yeah. They're so good. So underrated, I think. So over your career, you know, your musical career, you've you've done stuff with Whalen songs. Like you covered it in Star Gun. You know, you did the Phenexin album with your dad. Like what did you learn about his music from playing it that you maybe didn't know from just listening to it? Man. I don't know. I mean, you know, see my along my journey of playing music his music was some of the first stuff that I like learned to play. Like I, I wasn't somebody who like ever played in like cover band or anything, but when I was, you know, when we did that, the Phoenix on album, we're talking about, when we did that thing, we, that was like basically a bunch of remade Wayland songs, you know, and as mm-hmm. a little kid, like I, I listened to all that stuff. And even when I moved to LA, you know, I was just making demos for my first band. Like two of them were covers. Uh, uh, one of them was, we, I had sat in sheets off that old Waylon record and something, and I don't know what that what else I did, but it was like I uh, I just loved it, you know. It was kind of how I came to understand stuff, and I think I was kind of equating like understanding the difference between like the approach that he took and that's the approach mm-hmm. that like Nine Inch Nails takes or whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, so for me, like I don't know if it's a grand lesson. I just kind of I just. Uh, I just understood and heard this music so much in my life and wanted to, and, and really adored it, you know, and, mm-hmm. and um, it was hugely influential, obviously. And it was just kind of also always there in the background, you know, and For I sure. was an MTV kid listening to rock and roll and all that. So it was mm-hmm. just kind of me, me finding my identity somewhere between that material and the material of other kind of artists and genres that I liked. And, and, um, you know, and then of course, like playing it on the road, it's cool. But I'm not like going out there having some profound epiphany okay. about how he wrote like a certain song. You know, I'm really kind of out there going, just not only wanting to do the best job, but at the same time, kind of like 
do something interesting with it or, or, or whatever. I know people depend by that point in time. It's like, people are depending on me to do like, to be kind of true to all this stuff mm, in, in, yeah, in most, most ways, you know, yeah. there's other things, but, but so, so part of it to me is, is trying to deliver that, but it's also very second nature to me. And, you know, it's, it's something that, uh, I have kind of ingrained in there somewhere. So mm-hmm. it, it, uh, it was it's just fun but that being said those early years of making that record with him where i was adapting his songs to the style of music that i was listening to which is like nine snails and mm-hmm. stuff like that and uh and so during that time i was really understanding the gap and the difference and like and but how like the chord changes are kind of the same like it's mm-hmm. like you know when i when we were doing that like outlaw shit song that's on that album oh yeah like where we redid that that was me as a kid trying to turn a Waylon song into like hurt you know so mm-hmm. when johnny cash does hurt all these years later i was like no shit like because it was exactly what we were yeah, doing what you were trying to crazy. do earlier yeah yeah You know, actually, something that you but now you're bringing this up, you're making me think about certain things. And, it, and, and one thing that was kind of effective with me is that in my desire to try and, you know, understand music and in, in, in my desire to try and conflate concepts like ministry and like Waylon, you know, and things mm-hmm. like that, like I was, uh, even when I would like discover bands or discover songs or like, whether it would be like Guns N' Roses or something, if there was something in a song that, that kind of like reminded me of something in like my dad's music or like, and I would see, hey, this isn't that far from this. Like these two things work conceptually together. You know, I was like learning a lot of that. And I was, and it would always make me feel like, hey, maybe my dad would like this. Like, because, you know, like we had a really close relationship and he always, I would play him stuff that I liked and he'd play me stuff he liked and, and uh we didn't ever like sit down and like play guitars and sing to each other we we didn't ever do anything like that it was always listening to other people's music but um you know i would hear stuff in like a band and then think oh that's kind of like those are the same chords as like rose in paradise his song that i really liked and then i'd like go play play in that you know and then he'd, mm-hmm. he'd be interested but he, he, it was just so it was a lot of that it was a lot of me understanding yeah. how how similar all music is you know yeah for sure i, I mean and it's a great way to get that education ultimately it's like having this body of work that your dad made to be like i can compare this and like branch off from this in a way you know? yes yeah totally yeah. totally yeah. so my last question what is something you'd want people to know about Whalen that they don't get from his music or like reading about him? Man, that's, that's a tough question. I mean, that's a tough, what would I want them to know? I mean, there's like a thousand things that I would probably want them to know, but I mean, I mean, one of them was like, 
I mean, there's just a lot of the the personality. It's very different than what a lot of people think. Like he never drank. He partied. He did like drugs mm-hmm. and stuff in the seventies. He never drank. And so, like, I never grew up in a house where people drank. You know, mm-hmm. and like, uh, but at the same time, like, he was somebody who just loved music, and he always was thinking about it all the time, and he was always kind of saw everything through a lens of of his next project or or this thing that he liked or had of you know trying to write a song like this so he he was just such a great dad to me i got him in late in life and so i had this wonderful lucky experience of being raised encouraged to play music and mm-hmm. you know in a very stable house house so mm-hmm. you know my per, my perception of him is, is, is a very unique but it's a sliver of time you know but mm-hmm. it's at the end of the day you know he was a great man and he was he, he truly felt a responsibility for music and the future of music you know and that and that um really carried through like i i, I kind of am obsessed with the future of music you know and i think it came from him a lot mm-hmm. and you can hear that in the box he was yeah. thinking forwards the whole time yeah for sure. All right. Thank, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. You this got is really it. Great. It's been an Thanks honor to get to work on this. So we'll make sure you I'm get so... one, of course, when they ship. Oh, like, yeah. I'm yeah. like, I want like five. I got yeah, we'll definitely. Get them too. Yeah. I'm like, let me tell you, I'm so happy that you guys did this. I am such a big fan of, of Wyoming. Please have thank you, man. many, many albums from it. And I, and I am so excited about this when i saw it i was like oh this is like the coolest thing ever and it's something's very needed and i'm I, so i thank you it's all good man i'm excited about it it's, yeah it uh, continually keeps getting put out there yeah man for sure and we gotta talk i'll talk with adam we gotta do a shooter jennings record in one of our in our country subscription too oh uh, i'd love to I mean, That'd be awesome. I mean, i'm a huge fan of your records too man so like I'll talk oh, with Adam. I'll, I'll hit him up and uh, we can we can start talking. Like, let's get a, a black country rock record in in uh, in VMP. That would be amazing. That would yeah. be amazing. Let's do it. Let's do it. Can't you feel my love a growing? Can't you see it ain't a show? Well, you gotta be a no. I got a big big love. Not the kind of be concealing, it's just the kind of be revealing. Not a little bit of feeling. I got a big, big love. So there you have it. That is the end of episode one of this season of VMP Anthology Podcast. Thanks again to Shooter Jennings for coming on the podcast and talking with me. Up next in our second episode, which is now in your feed. You're going to hear a lot of me telling you about these records, why they were picked, how they were picked, and things to listen for and songs especially that I think you should pay attention to as you make your way through this box. So consider this sort of the director's commentary episode too. We'll see you in that episode in just a minute. This season of the VMP Anthology podcast is executive produced, written, and hosted by Andrew Winnestorfer. It is produced by Jim Hankey of the Vinyl Emergency Podcast. A special thanks to Shooter Jennings for trusting us with his dad's music and for guesting on this episode. And additional thanks to Zach and Amy at Sony. And before we go, remember, listen to more Jesse Coulter. <laughs>